The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture is from Philemon 19 through 25. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ will be with your spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Praise Praise be to Christ. Thanks, Lexi. Well, again, it's good to see everybody. If you uh, came in um, in in between uh, the confession or uh, till now. My name is Stacy Croft, and uh, I'd love to meet you and get to know you. I'm the pastor here at Christ Pres Music Row, and um, it's good to see your faces, and a lot of you here for the summer, and uh, some of you maybe even here, just moved here for the summer to do a job or something like that, so welcome to Nash Vegas for the up and down weather, the, you know, the nice cold and then heat. You'll get sick in the first month you're here just because of the weather. Uh, but so glad you're here with us. You know, um, I actually got to see some um, longtime good friends this morning walking in. Ironically, um, uh, Missy and Paul Wallace are here. Uh, I don't know if you remember who they are, but uh, Missy was the founder of National Institute of Faith and Work. And actually, when we started our church, uh, that's when she came, we came in together uh, around the same time uh, working at Christ Pres. And uh, one of the things that uh, I remember uh, Missy and I talking about is how do we really think about you know National Institute of Faith and Work integration of uh, of faith and work how do we get more of that discussion going from the pulpit and ironically my first illustration is about faith and work uh, and here they are she'd be so proud but you know one of the things that I was reading and all of y'all know this you felt the ripples from the pandemic everybody in this room has felt that. Uh, towards your work, be it you change jobs, you work from home more now, uh, you maybe you switch, you, maybe the job you were in an office and now everybody's remote. I mean, it's it's really taking the box of work and just shaking it up and said, okay, where's it going to land? And, uh, you know, it's also made people really ask the question, how much do we work? Uh, and how effective is our work? You know, all those questions have come in. Uh, there was an article in the Atlantic that said the case for the four-day work week And I thought it was an interesting one, not just about, okay, everybody, what if, whoa, we worked four days instead of five during the week or six as we usually do. It wasn't one of those kind of things. It was actually getting at the heart of um, those ripples and the different elements that we have working from home uh, at different cities and those kind of things. But really what it did was it talked about not making, by actually making people work four days a week and concentrated time instead of five or even six, they actually saw the effectiveness of their jobs, the employees, as well as the um, employers themselves and the company saw growth. 
And they talked about it in this article that the reason they did was because work stopped being what was primary. That it was actually, it, it was an odd thing that instead of putting work in the middle and everybody revolving their life around it and doing it where you have work in your hand on that phone all the time and you're doing it anywhere you go, concentrating it allowed you to go and enjoy, enjoy work and leave and enjoy life. And they saw promotion and growth in it. It was fascinating. And, and to see articles like this over and over, say, and so maybe you've read some yourself, talk about how work is not <clears throat> dismissed, but it's interesting. You've probably seen a million, you know, we need new hire signs all over the city. Wouldn't it be interesting if for those different employers, if, if now scaling back, you know, some have scaled back hours, some have scaled back, some of the coffee shops I used to meet several of you at are now closing earlier than they, they never reopened. <laughs> what would it be like for us to actually make sense of work because we actually stepped away from making work the, the primary thing? You know, we've been going through the letter of Philemon. We're actually finishing it today. It's the shortest letter that Paul wrote uh, in uh, his letters in the New Testament. It's only 25 verses. So when you see it, it's, there's not even a chapter. It's just 25 verses. And throughout it, what, what, what Paul does, what's unique, is he's not writing a letter to one church. He's actually writing to an individual. And he's saying to this individual, whose name is Philemon, who had a slave that stole from him and left, somehow ran into Paul, becomes a Christian, and, and now Paul is saying, I want you to receive him back. The big question on the table is, how are you gonna do that? And he finishes the letter by saying a language, he says something like in verse 21, confident of your obedience. When we read that word obedience, like that sounds kind of intense. We don't really use that word unless we're like speaking to somebody that is a subordinate or maybe a child. You're like, you are so disobedient right now. <laughs> but we don't think about our obedience. And, and when we do, and we talk about living as a Christian, it can be very similar to what we see about work is oftentimes we, we get this confusion of what it means to live out our life as Christians. And so we, we, we toggle between, okay, grace and lots of grace and not doing anything in life. And then we look up and we're like, oh man, do I spend time in the Bible? Do I pray? What does it really mean to be a Christian? How do I live this out? Then to putting our obedience in the center. You know, Paul finishes this letter that sounds so gracious with the gospel by saying, confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than what I say. Is he finishing by saying, let's put, let's put our obedience in the middle. What really counts is what you can get done as a Christian. Is that what he's getting at? Or is there more to what obedience means? As we finish this letter, I really want us to see that Paul's letter doesn't leave us off the hook. It does drive us with the gospel, the good news that who, of who we are in Jesus. But as we said at the very beginning, it runs all of our life, our ethic, our work, our family, our friends, the way we view ourselves through what we are in Jesus, the good news of the gospel, which means we should live differently. So we're gonna look at this in a couple of ways. One is ownership. And the second is obedience. We're going to look at this final kind of laying of the, the, the foundation of, of Philemon between ownership and obedience, those two things. 
And Paul actually begins this letter, uh, I mean, ends this letter differently than when he has in some other ones. So he says, Paul, I write that, I, Paul, write this with my own hand, which is kind of a strange thing to say. Okay, well, weren't you writing this all along? <laughs> well, oftentimes Paul, when he was in prison, would have someone he would dictate to. In this case, it was, it was probably Timothy that was dictating here. Some other times he had amanuensis, which is somebody who would take that writing form for you because Paul's chained to somebody or somewhere else. He couldn't write or possibly even didn't have access to it or they didn't want to give it to him. So he would speak to somebody outside or someone who was not chained who would, he could dictate to. <clears throat> and with that, <clears throat> he would write, he would say, and there are key moments in his letters where he would write things like this. He'd say, I'm writing to you now with my own hand. And it's kind of one of those moments you say, you know, like somebody like me or someone else says, okay, if, if you take away one thing, here's what I want you to take. You know, that's the moment you're going to sit up and go, okay, maybe I need to listen, right? Paul's wanting to grab the attention and say, I'm actually taking the pen and I'm writing it down. In this case, though, it was different than the other times. It wasn't Paul trying to get attention. It was actually him saying, and as he says right after, I write this with my own hand, I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even of your own self. What Paul is doing is he's at writing to Philemon about the damages and, and the legal action that Philemon would probably need to take against Onesimus, his slave. And what he's finishing by saying here is he's saying not hey, pay attention. He's saying, I'm writing with my own hand because this in that legal form in this art, um, in ancient language would be actually considered a promissory note. In other words, Paul is writing this to say, I will repay it. Here's my signature. Put all of the charges on me. He's saying the ownership of whatever he owes you, lay it on me. Because whatever Onesimus took, however it handled, it created major legal drama. If you even look in Roman or Mosaic law that the Jews followed, the, 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 the issues of what slaves would have to deal with if they stole would be a problem. Even upon death, even upon other things. And what Paul is getting at here is now that Onesimus has become a Christian, now that he knows the reality of debt, I want to talk to you about the reality of debt, and I'm willing to take on any debt he has so that you can embrace him, not as a slave, but as a brother, as someone who is now in Jesus. But here, here's the thing. If you're like me, and I remember talking to a woman about the gospel some years ago and, and literally about these kind of passages. And I loved her question. She said, I love the idea of this grace thing. It's really great. Uh, I think it's a, a great idea. But when it comes to the damages that someone has incurred or some uh, employee or somebody else has, has done to just wipe it out, that doesn't work. What kind of society are we in? How, how do you absorb a cost like that? How does that work? <laughs> that is an awesome question. And, and you know as well as I do, not just Philemon, but there are people in your life and in mine who have incurred major damages towards you or from you. That in the back of your mind, if you thought, how do I absorb this cost? It makes you cringe. 
it, it makes any of us think, how could I ever, ever just lay that down, just absorb a debt, take it in? How does repair happen? It's a really good question. You see, the Bible talks about ownership a lot. <laughs> it uses that language of ownership a lot. And particularly in this, in this letter, talking about slaves and masters. But Paul would begin to talk about, hey, the relationship here, and he takes it from moving it from what would be transactional relationship to transformational relationship. And so many of us, and I even remember discussing with a, a number of people, what, what does it mean to have cost-benefit analysis in relationships that you have these friendships that, well, you know, I mean, if we get down to it, are relationships based on a transformational loving basis or are they transactional? Do they kind of give us what we need? And we visit them every so often, almost like an ATM, and, and receive maybe a, a, a pat on the back, a, a friendship, a, a lunch, or something like that? Or are they really in-depth, I know you, you know me, the character between us both overlaps so that we can press in on each other kind of relationships in our life? And I would venture a guess that many of us be it shaken up from being isolated or whatever it is, or coming back in, as so many people have said to me as we've had events, I'm out of social practice. What does it mean for our hearts to actually be engaged in transformational relationship, not transactional? Not ones that just give and take, but ones that actually absorb cost. Ones that mean we lean into one another with deep care and love. Here's what, Paul says something after this, and at first when I read it, I kind of thought, man, this sits kind of funny with me, and I don't know if you heard it. He says, I will repay it. And then there's like a little bit of a gap, and it says, to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Now, this is a moment where you kind of think Paul is flexing his, his uh, evangelistic muscles. Maybe he's like, and he kind of is saying to Philemon, hey, you kind of owe me because I brought you to faith. That's really what Paul is saying. But is Paul wanting to guilt him? This is the interesting thing. Does that drive him to guilt? Or does it drive him to grace? This is that line that we walk in, in, in church, I think now. What is the point of being in these walls and taking in these relationships, both with the Lord and others? Is it one that simply we kind of go, well, I kind of owe God. <laughs> I kind of owe, I kind of owe my friends. I kind of owe my family because I grew up and they kept taking me to church and they talk to me about prayer and those kind of things. Where does it does ownership switch gears? This is what Tim Keller talks a lot about. He says one of the things that he's talked for years about. Tim Keller is a pastor out of New York City. For years, he talked about the difference between those who grow up in faith and those who are in inherited faith, and those who have chosen faith. And one of the things he says is, you can have chosen faith that you grow up in, but when do you actually choose 
and say, I'm following God, that you recognize that the Lord has seized you, who owns you. There are a couple of passages that draw this out. One is a passage talking about payment in life, the parable of the prodigal son. This is a kind of an older school thing. Maybe you've heard it before. Even if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, it's a, a parable uh, that Jesus uses to talk about an older brother and a younger brother, and that the younger brother decides, ah, I'm kind of tired of living here. He takes his, his inheritance that's due to him from his father. He takes off, he spends it all, and comes back to his father basically in ragged clothing, ready with a speech to kind of hope his dad and his family will take him back in after he's just completely been irresponsible. And his father not only takes him in, but embraces him, loves him, receives him. And the older brother is sitting there going, what is happening right now? See, it's, it's actually a story about damages in repair. It's actually a story about not just one prodigal son, but two, about two sons that view how is their relationship with God and others. See, see, there's damages that are incurred and the older brother sees the younger brother come back and go, wait, you're willing to forgive him for this? Like, I get you letting him back in the house, but we're, we're kind of the, like the, okay, show me that you have learned responsibility. And that is what Jesus is actually drawing out, is not the focus on the younger brother. He tells this long parable about this younger brother, all to get the Pharisees who are listening to focus on their heart, which is the older brother. Which is often where we can stand and look at God and say, what is this debt? Can't I just repay it? Didn't he owe you? I've worked hard. That's actually what the older brother says. I've been here and done everything you said. I've carried it out to the letter. What, what am I owed? What am I due? Where are my goods? See, that's not owning your faith. That's looking at God as owing you. And I think it is easy for us to do that. I think it's easy to say, God, you owe me. I've done all this work for you for so long. I've followed you. I've done these things. And oftentimes we get to a place where we feel burned or cynical or bored or exhausted from what is the point? What's the point, God? What are you wanting with me? And we miss it all for the one who has come to us, who loves us. We miss all those things for the one who is there, the Father himself. I've done it so many times in my own life. That's even what the younger brother did, but you know what? The, he, he prepared a speech to try and curry favor. And yet he's overwhelmed even more with grace. This is where the second passage, I think from Isaiah 55, we actually sing a song about it. It's come... Come and um, um, come, ye sinners, poor and wretched. It's actually from Isaiah 55, 1 that highlights about poverty. It says, Come to the Lord and buy without money. What a weird thing to say. How do you come to someone and buy without money? 
But the whole point of that song and the whole point drawn from Isaiah 55.1 is this. It highlights our poverty and the need for the commodity that the Lord is giving in Isaiah 55, but that we come and buy because it's free. We own what is free because we are owned. There is a payment. That's what Isaiah 55 is saying. You still have to buy. Isn't that weird? You still have to come and buy, but it's not your payment taken. See, here's the distinction of Christianity is that there is a deep and profound cost to it. It made someone really upset when I said this before, but do you know that God's love for you is conditional? Do you know why it's conditional? Because it's not on your conditions, it's on Jesus. The condition is laid on him. The reason we can buy without money is because it's been purchased already in him. The ownership is there. It is owned. You are his. There's a phrase here that Paul only uses in Philemon, and it's fascinating. He uses it at the beginning of this letter, and he uses it at the very end. He says, Paul, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus. In others' letters, he'll talk about he's a prisoner, but he won't bracket it with a prisoner of Christ Jesus. That he is Christ's prisoner, and he rejoices in it. Because to be in his life and to be owned by him in the conditions that the Lord has laid on Jesus so that he may buy in freedom, that you and I can come, come and buy from him. This is why all the language that Jesus in the gospel says to so many people, if you thirst, you can drink from this well and you'll never be thirsty again. What is he talking about? He's saying that you can go back to it over and over because that is how the Lord loves us. The deep payment and cost of Christianity is unparalleled from any other philosophy, idea, or religion. The cost is all on God himself. It's insane if you think about it. Think about what Paul is, you know, where, where does Paul get it? It's from that. How does Paul say, I will repay it? If you, if you think about the logic here, Paul is completely impoverished. He has no money. He is chained in a prison and he's telling a incredibly wealthy church, a uh, guy who runs a house church, Philemon, I will pay it back completely. What do you think Philemon's thinking? Paul, okay, that's great. He can't, how is he gonna pay it back? And yet he's willing to take all of that. Where does Paul get it? <laughs> because that's the good news of the gospel. That is who, what ownership is because he knows the owner of his life. Paul calls that, and then he can say, this is why he can hit it, confidence of your, confident of your obedience. That he begins with ownership and cost and payment, but this is what drives the obedience. Confident of it. You know, I was reading, um, <clears throat> I was thinking about obedience and it, I happen to be reading C.S. Lewis, 
talking about obedience. And it was so funny to read him talk about obedience. Now, if you're familiar with C.S. Lewis, he's written a lot of essays and letters and things. But to hear him talk about obedience, he, he, he talked about obedience as an art. <laughs> is that obedience is an art. We spend a, a great time, and he says this, we spend a great time of our life obeying. So like when we read this word obedience, for many of us, it may strike a chord of, oh, that sounds really like harsh and cultish or whatever comes in your mind. But Lewis is getting to the fact that it's actually an art that we're to learn. He says that when children learn obedience, they're learning at the point not just to obey, but to also command. He said it's actually two parts that we're learning not just to obey and be submissive, we're actually learning to command others in that they obey us. Really interesting. Because if you think about what Philemon is being taught by Paul, that's exactly what he's getting at. He's saying, Philemon, here's the art of obedience. How in the world can he take it? Let's think about this, slice this in a number of ways. When Paul says to Philemon, I expect you're going to carry this much further than what, you, what I've told you, confident of your obedience. Now, Philemon could do a number of things. He could fall short of what Paul expects and live with the disappointment. And many of us have lived in that. We're like, oh man, we know disappointment. I'm going to live up to what Paul says. He could meet and be equal to what Paul asks him to do. He could free, free Onesimus care for him, bring him in, and tolerate him, and, and love him, and give him all, you know, life. That'd be fine, I'm sure. He could even exceed it. He could exceed it by freeing him, bringing him in, treating him like anyone else in his family, like a, a son, a brother. But even if he does that, now think about this, even if he does more how often did you, like me, when we were growing up, realize if we turn the key of obedience here, we can get a really good reward on the other side. We can miss the payment and cost of the one who really gives himself for us and obey for the thing that he gives us. And this is why Paul leans into more and more of the character of what it means to obey. The art, as C.S. Lewis says, the art. You know how to obey, you know how to command. And he turns it to say, to say nothing of you, you're owing me, even your own self. Meaning there's an even greater, even greater obedience you owe because of the eternal love that he has for you. I was sitting around with a group of men the other night um, talking about how we got tickets. <laughs> I don't know if you ever... Think about the last few tickets you've gotten, uh, driving tickets, speeding tickets. It was actually really funny because we all had different stories about when we got pulled over, how it was handled. So one, one guy was saying, he got pulled over, he got out of the ticket. I was like, how in the world did you do that? And he was like, I've just kind of like submitted myself. You know, I was just kind of like, man, I'm so sorry. I, you know, just kind of like humble. And he just got out of it. I was like, golly, I mean, sounds like it would work. Another guy was saying, yeah, he came up and, I, and immediately the cop said, you know, it, it's, you were going this fast. And he goes, eh, I, 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 
think you're off on that one. I literally was arguing like that. I, I, I think you're wrong. I mean, and he kept pushing back. He was like, no, I, I wrote it down. You were going this fast. Oh, I, let's, let's talk about this for a minute. Uh, I remember getting pulled over and um, it was such a, we were driving, funny, all three of us were driving to vacation when this is happening. Uh, I remember getting pulled over and when I did, driving to the beach on vacation, uh, my wife using the phone to film my reaction, which that was quite funny, and my kids in the background, one of which was like, can we still go to the beach? Like he thought I was getting arrested, you know. And I had this mix of defensiveness and like, oh, complete shame and dejection. But I think like when we read this, that's what we typically think when we think of obedience. It's, okay, how do I, how do, I do this right? How do I walk this? This is why when there's a policeman, when we are driving on the freeway and, and you see a police car and every car around them is driving the exact same speed. Have you ever noticed that? Such a weird experience. No one wants to drive in front of the police. Like you're always like, can I can I go in front? Like, what if the, if you were the policeman, wouldn't you just say, let's go 30 and see what everybody does on a 55? But that 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 is where our hearts are. Doesn't that explain us when it comes to obedience? What gets to the core of our obedience is knowing the one who loves us so profoundly that he doesn't come in as Paul did with Philemon. He doesn't come in over and over in this letter and say, I could command you to do this, but I'm not going to. I want you to recognize and realize the love that is yours. My favorite Psalm, Psalm 32. I read it every time before I I wake up before Sunday because I need it. It's a Psalm on repentance that David writes. There is the weirdest line in there that always hooks me. It says this, do not be like the horse or mule, which needs the b- a bit or bridle. It's like towards the end, the psalm on repentance, like how you live. Why would I be a horse or a mule? Because what that psalm is saying in repentance is, I don't want you to turn from not just bad things and good things, bad things and good things to Jesus out of just rote life just because I'm going this speed, that you just come right along with me. I want you to grasp the ownership that I have in you with the gospel. My son is reading a, a new book right now uh, for one of his summer readings. It's a book on a guy named Eric Little. I don't know if you heard that name. Uh, famous runner in the Olympics. who um, was also a missionary in, in uh, China, I think years and years ago. And, This is the early uh, 20th century. One of the things that Eric Little, as he was a Christian, he was so fast. I mean, you can watch it in Chariots of Fire is the name of the movie that is based on he and another man named Harold Abrams, who was a a sprinter as well. And it shows their life, fantastic movie, won all sorts of awards, which is incredible in and of itself. There's a moment even when Eric Little is running, he ran the 400, he fell on the 400. He got knocked off the track. He was so fast. He jumped up and ran and caught, he, he hopped up, got back on the track and won the race. That's how fast he was. He was called the Flying Scotsman. He was Scottish. He had a great accent. One of the things that was interesting about him is when the Olympics came, they asked him to run on Sunday 
because that was when his event was. And he adamantly said no. And it was so hard for them to understand why. Why will you not run on Sunday? Is it Sunday? And he began talking. In the movie, they draw this out more. But they talk about that when I, I feel God's pleasure when I run. And here's what's interesting about that note. He doesn't put running in the middle and say, it pleases God for me to run. He says, I feel God's pleasure when I run. Because of the abundance of the relationship that he had with the Lord, it drove him to enjoy running, to do running, to do it when he could. But he knew when running took, tried to take its place and govern the way that his relationship was with God, he knew he had to move it. That is where obedience comes. This is where this table points us to. This table tells us of two things. One, an incredible cost and payment. And two, an incredible obedience. This Sunday is celebrated uh, typically in church history of called Ascension Sunday, uh, which happened actually on Thursday, which is the 40 days after Jesus resurrected that he spent time revealing and showing himself and eating and being with his disciples. And they celebrate it. And you know, the early church used to celebrate Ascension Sunday like almost it was the second Easter. And the reason they did was because Ascension Sunday, when Jesus ascended into heaven to then be at the right hand of God, he ascended as all all of them. Imagine that. They're all in the first Acts chapter one, the book, New Testament. They're all standing there watching him like this. And the angels say, why, why are you staring into heaven? And the reason Ascension Sunday was so powerful and important is first, it is Jesus standing at the right hand of God consistently saying, here is the payment for my people. That the sacrifice that used to happen in the temple no longer needed to, the sacrifice was done and stood next to and does now, even at this very second, pleading on our behalf all the time, that the cost, the ownership is never released. We are his. And the other thing it does is that from that throne, the Lord Jesus sent his spirit so that what you're doing when you come to this table, you can't leave this table the same way you came. You actually leave with the spirit of God working in you to make you more like himself. So that the obedience that we long for is possible, not because we're so strong or because we can read and because we can figure it out, but because God is actively working in us even when we are unwilling, even when we just drive the same speed, hoping (laughs) that we're doing the right thing. The Lord Jesus is making us more like himself. That is this table. It's the glory of what we have in both the payment and ownership of the Lord Jesus over, over us as his prisoners and delightful ones at that and the ones who live in his obedience. Let's stand together.